Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In today's episode, we're looking at how social protection supports the care of the most vulnerable people in our society, as well as the people that take on that vital work. Care and domestic work, mostly performed by women, has been called the work that enables all other work. Yet it has been undervalued in economic models and social protections for workers and carers are patchy. The value of unpaid care and domestic work has been estimated at around 11 trillion US dollars, that's roughly 9% of global GDP, while low paid domestic workers make up more than 20% of the global care workforce. In today's episode, we'll explore three angles for social protection and the care economy. We'll look at how social protection and social insurance can better support unpaid carers, what it takes to get domestic workers the social protections that they need, care for their own children and support them into retirement, and how to address the accessibility and quality of care services. With me for today's episode are Silke Staub and Adriana Paz Ramirez. Silke is a research specialist at UN Women, and Adriana is Latin America Regional Coordinator for the International Domestic Workers Federation. Welcome, Adriana and Silke. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Joanne. I'm very happy to be here. Adriana, let's first talk about domestic workers. Who are they in Latin America, and can you give us a sense of the kind of work that they do? Perhaps I will start by saying that there are almost 75 million domestic workers globally. And out of those 75 million, 14 million are in Latin America, which is the second largest population after Asia of domestic workers. Almost 20% of the domestic workers globally are in Latin America. And from those, domestic workers make up the 15% of the female actively working population in Latin America. And they provide the main care work, direct or indirect care work. By direct care, we mean those needs and activities that involves having a direct contact with the person, like physical and emotional contact. This is for kids, for babies. This is for elderly population. This is for people with a chronic disease or all sorts of mental or physical disabilities. In this type of care, usually emotional ties are created because you are taking care of the person in the most absolute, vulnerable, and intimate way possible. Whereas the indirect care, it's about all those activities needed for you to survive. Like, for example, eating, somebody that goes and buy your groceries, prepare your meals, and cleaning your house. But basically, these women, they provide direct and indirect care for the population. And um, domestic workers provide 24, 25% of the care needs of the population globally. Silke, in addition to people who are employed in some way to do care work, which is what Adriana has just described, can you also talk a bit about how family members providing unpaid care also contribute to the care economy or or how we conceptualise that work and that contribution? The reality is really that the bulk of care work today is unpaid. Most of that work is carried out by family members and households. Over 16 billion hours are spent 
every day on this type of work. That's the equivalent of 2 billion full-time jobs. And across the globe, women do three times as much of this work as men. And Adriana already mentioned some of the tasks, right? Looking after children, nursing sick relatives, cleaning the house, um, fetching water and firewood, et cetera. It is the work that makes all other work possible. If women stopped doing it, the whole economy would collapse. And feminist scholars have therefore called this the other economy, the one that remains unaccounted for in mainstream indicators of economic performance, including GDP. And feminist economists have also developed methodologies to assign an economic value to this work, asking, for example, how much would it cost if all of this work was paid, right? And the numbers are pretty mind-boggling. It's really amounts that you can't imagine, 11 trillion US dollars or 9% of global GDP. And that's only using the minimum wage as a reference, so an underestimation of, of what that work really involves. That said, the final thing I, I want to say is that we all know that the value of unpaid care is not just economic, right? It's the glue that holds families, communities, and societies together. It creates health, capabilities, well-being, attachment so many benefits that really cannot be expressed in economic terms. But because unpaid care is so poorly supported at the moment, including by many social protection systems, those who provide it often pay a high price in terms of their own economic security, physical and mental health. Thank you. And can you tell us a little bit more about how having access to affordable and quality care, whether that's for children or for the elderly or for others, um, how that contributes to the economy and, and to society. Yeah, so childcare services are a really important but very neglected pillar of social protection systems. I think one of the most important roles they play from a social protection perspective is that they are really essential enablers of income security for workers with care responsibilities. Without affordable quality care services, parents and particularly mothers either lose out on employment opportunities or, and that's true also, you know, in a lot of high income countries, they see large chunks of their salary slip away to pay for private childcare arrangements. The other important contribution that childcare services make is um, to child development, right? But really critical to these, to producing these outcomes is service quality. And I really cannot stress this enough. And that service quality includes the development and retention of a skilled childcare workforce with the ability to create a stimulating learning environment. And it also includes adequate wages for that childcare workforce. And so this leads me to a final important contribution of childcare services, which is if we expand affordable, accessible, quality childcare services, this can be an important motor of decent job creation. So at UN Women, we've carried out simulations of the economic multiplier effects of public investments in universal quality childcare services for several countries. And the job creation potential is really great. And the best part of it is that although it requires quite an important public investment, a lot of this investment can be recouped through um, increased taxes and social security contributions if this work is formal. So some of the initial fiscal outlay is, is made up later. Adriana, I wanted to ask you, building on some of Silke's points, why is putting care into an economic framework important or useful is it the right framing or does it actually miss out on some important aspects? I actually think it's the right framing and I think it's a framing that we need 
right now. We talk about the service economy, right? The gig economy. And we need to talk about the care economy as well, because it's often perceived, well, it's often not perceived, <laughs> period. It's undervalued, it's unrecognized. It is something that women do. And women do because they are women. They naturally love, they were born with a groom and wanting to clean and wanting to be mothers. So these are really the um the very practical effects and the legacy of slavery and patriarchy and capitalism that renders this work as completely invisible and valuable. I also think that it is a mistake to keep talking about the domestic work as unproductive. It is productive. And uh, like Silke was saying, it is estimated that $11 trillion are required to provide life sustenance and ensure life reproduction so everyone else can go outside and perform the so-called productive work. So by centering the care economy as an economy without which society simply could not exist one day, I think it's in a, an effort to bring visibility to a work that is essential, yet because of patriarchy and colonialism is not value. And I think also brings the attention to governments and policymakers to start thinking in the co-responsibility of the state to ensure that this care work is done and not only falls on the back of women to do the paid and unpaid care work. If I may just build off what Adriana said a bit more, because I think it's really important and it's really a little bit also where the cutting edge of the care and social protection debate is at. We fought really hard to get unpaid care recognized as productive work. It's productive work that creates human capabilities, right? But at the same time, we have a lot of productive work that is essentially destructive, work that is being carried out as part of economic models that have been profoundly unsustainable. And those growth and productivity focused models are the ones that have brought the world to the verge of climate catastrophe. So I think there is a debate to be had as well of stopping to ask what care can do for economic growth and to start asking what kind of economy do we need to ensure that all people and the planet are well taken care of. And I think this is particularly important at the current conjuncture where just transitions towards carbon-free economies are top of mind, right, for many policymakers. And so investments in childcare and other social services where emissions are by definition low um, are an important opportunity for those just transitions as well. One of the key ways that social protection comes into the care economy is, of course, by providing income, security and support for carers. So, Silke, can you talk us through some of that? What are some of the instruments? What is the role of social assistance, social insurance programs in enabling the kind of care work that we're talking about? Um, they do play an important role or can, could play an important role in providing income security for those who provide unpaid care. There is clear evidence, for example, that poverty among single mothers is much lower in countries with more generous social transfer systems, right? Um, and those single mothers are the ones who are straddling unpaid care and work in the paid economy most of the time. One of the longest standing care-related social protection schemes is probably paid maternity leave, 
Now also more than 100 countries have paid paternity leave, which is an important signal to what Adriana was saying as well. It's not only women who can and should be doing this work. Now, the main problem with these schemes currently is that they tend to benefit mainly formal workers who are a minority in developing countries. And I'm sure Adriana can speak to this as well as the ones who are doing care work in other families. Domestic workers themselves often have no support when they themselves would require a paid maternity leave or other services. So in Africa, for example, less than 15% of mothers with newborns currently have access to maternity leave benefits. Another good example, and I think important example of how social protection systems can address care is related to pension systems, because those who provide care for family members um, whether that's young children, a sick partner, frail elderly parents, et cetera, often interrupt their employment trajectories to do so. And when they do so, they lose entitlements and contributory social security schemes, so social insurance. And this has affected women disproportionately, and it has contributed to huge gender pension gaps and in many countries also to higher levels of old age poverty among women. And so what some countries have done is introduce so-called care credits to make sure that periods taken out of paid employment to provide unpaid care are recognized, that contributory gaps are replenished, and that the economic penalties for unpaid caregivers are reduced. Um, but it's important, I think, to look at the whole of the social protection system and really interrogate each scheme to say, what can this scheme do to better support unpaid care work, right? Other social protection benefits, social assistance, for example, child allowances, social pensions have been shown to play an important enabling role for care. But at the same time, let's not forget that their main purpose has never been to pay for care work. They're meant to cover additional expenses associated with child rearing, food, diapers, school supplies, etc., or to cover living expenses of older persons who no longer earn an income. So I think we can't kind of overburden those already meager transfers with assuming that they also pay for care. Thank you. For me, this does raise the question about whether social protection systems could be doing more to compensate carers for their work. And it brings to mind one of the arguments that you hear in favour of universal basic income, which we've talked about on this show in previous episodes. Proponents argue that one of the things it can do is allow people to take time out for caring and in that sense uh, compensate or enable that kind of care work. So I think the question you raise about compensation is a really important one to address because it is sometimes assumed that recognizing the value of unpaid care necessarily implies providing monetary payments for it, right? And there was a time in history when women's rights advocates demanded wages for housework or mother's pensions. I would say that this is probably not the kind of social provision that most gender equality advocates and feminist movements prioritize today. Also because of the fear that if you provide these payments, you may inadvertently reinforce the existing gender division of labor and lead women to specialize even more in unpaid care work against what is likely to be a meager reward, a stipend that may remain low and inadequate. And I think similar concerns exist around universal basic income. I mean, I think the beauty of universal basic income is if it's really universal and if it really provides for an adequate standard of living, which is a human right, then it's great. But there are real concerns, particularly in, you know, a context where budgets are constrained, where we're facing cutbacks and austerity measures rather than an expansion, that a UBI would not be particularly adequate or not universal or both. 
But I think one of the key concerns is really that it'll take away emphasis from some of the in-kind provisions that unpaid carers need, from the infrastructure, from the services. And again, that takes me back to kind of listen to what unpaid caregivers have to say. A lot of the women in low-income countries will tell you, I spent six hours a day carrying water. I need piped water on household premises. That will make the difference for me. Or in Senegal, we've worked with women cooperatives. And one of the things that came out there is health, as basic as that. We spend a lot of our time caring for sick children or other sick family members. When we do so, we have no income replacement, but we also have no access to free health care. And so it's about then working with these um, constituencies to make sure that the government provisions social protection systems and services really, really reach them and respond to their needs. Turning now to care workers, we've heard how critical this work is to the economy and to society, but care work itself, even when it is paid work, is often informal and workers in the sector lack many protections for themselves. Adriana, what are some of the challenges in extending social protections to domestic workers? I'm going to speak about um, social protection from the point of view that it is a right. It is a human right. It is a labour right to have access to social protection, and it is the responsibility of the state to provide that. As uh, Silke said, a lot of workers in the informal economy are not included in the social protection, which is like a really not only a bad design of social protection schemes, but it is also an issue of not recognizing informal economy as essential part of the economy. And I want to make here a little differentiation about when we talk about informal workers and informal economy. In the case of domestic workers in Latin America, domestic workers are considered wage workers. They are not part of the informal economy from the theoretical point of view speaking. They are in a contractual relationship. It is very clear who is the employer and who is the worker. And uh, in Latin America, there are legal frameworks of protection. Unlike other regions where these legal frameworks of protection do not exist yet. This is the fight that IDWF has right now. In Latin America, there are these legal frameworks of protections, not because our governments are benevolent or progressive, but it's because of the struggle of the domestic workers movement from easily 40, 50 years ago. And now we have these domestic workers laws. We have 18 ratifications in the region of ILO Convention C1A9, which is distant work for domestic workers. And yet domestic workers work under informal conditions. This is because the legal frameworks are not implemented. Many of them, they do not have regulations uh, and there are no monitoring and enforcement. However, what really lies underneath, it is the colonial and patriarchal mentalities and practices at the level of the household between the worker and the employer. So then you have domestic workers that they have been working easily 30, 40, 50 years of their lives, and they do not have access to pension plans like any other worker in any other sector will have. So this puts these workers, domestic workers, in a perpetual cycle of poverty, 
because simply their work is not recognized. And this is why we go back often and often to the old premise that made the domestic worker movement start since easily 100 years ago here in, in, in El Cono Sur and the Andean region that says domestic work is work and domestic workers are workers. If you think in that way, domestic workers are part of the working class, are part of the economy, and therefore they have the entitlement to be included in the social protection schemes. Following on from what you've just said, Adriana, can you give an example or two of the way domestic workers have managed to organize to access some of these protections that we've been talking about? I will give you the closest example in the timeline of the struggle of domestic workers, and it is the case of Mexico. In Mexico, the union has received the case of a domestic worker that was about 70-something years old. So after working for 50 years, she was looking to receive her pension plan, her retirement, and the Mexican Social Security Institute told her that she doesn't qualify for that, that she has never contributed to her pension, and therefore she has no pension after being working for 50 years. So after a few years of doing a strategic litigation with lawyers, then the Social Security Institute in Mexico said no, we're not going to include domestic workers. It's going to be a burden for our institution because they are going to take more than what they are going to contribute to our system. And this is often the prejudice and the stereotype that domestic workers are going to bring down the national social security system. So they kept litigating and campaigning on the ground. The movement, the union has campaigned with different policymakers, with senators, with deputies. So they built momentum. And maybe you will remember a big part of this momentum contributed the release of the movie Roma. So there has been a campaign that was a multi-layer campaign involving a strategic litigation, involving political advocacy, involving grassroots organizing on the ground that involved asking employers to sign formal work agreements with the domestic workers. So it involved a lot of organizing and mobilizing and also doing cultural mobilizing. So then the Mexican Supreme Court at the end has ruled in favor of domestic workers and instructed to the Mexican Social Security Institute to include domestic workers and to start by creating a pilot program to make sure that the Mexican Social Protection Institute will rearrange, will adapt, and will create mechanisms to bring this so-called informal labor into the system. So they have done a pilot project for about three, four years. 200% of domestic workers have registered into this pilot project in comparison with the old voluntary regime. So this tells you, it breaks another myth that say, but they don't want to be in the social protection. They don't want to contribute. They don't register anyways. So domestic workers have proved them that no, if they have the opportunity, they will register themselves and they will work with their employers. They will convince 
their employers to contribute to the social protection for them. And now it's no longer a pilot project, but now it is a mandatory program that has been improved. And this is the struggle that they have been doing for the last 20 years. And now we see that the law does not exclude domestic workers explicitly. Let's move on now to the private provision of care services, where they might be provided by companies or or the market. I'm thinking of daycare for children, residential or in-home care for elderly people and so on. Silcare, I wanted to ask you a bit about, I guess, this sort of sector of care service. What is the role for governments to provide or subsidise, in some cases, these kinds of services so that they can become more accessible and affordable and hopefully have the kind of quality that we expect? It's clear that governments have a pivotal role in financing, regulating and providing care services, right? The extent to which they actually play these roles or pursue more of a laissez-faire approach varies significantly across countries. And the capacities also to provide and to regulate vary across countries, right? I think overall, particularly the pandemic has really shown how fragile care services are, even in high-income countries. And so we've spoken a lot about childcare, but if you take, for example, the huge number of COVID deaths that occurred in nursing homes across Europe and North America, right? Something really shocking. And a lot of it attributable to kind of the ruthlessness of this virus. But there is also emerging evidence that suggests that really longstanding infrastructure deficits for working conditions for you know, the workforce in long-term care as well as lack of oversight and accountability of private for-profit facilities did play a role in this. And so I think that's a really important lesson. The other lesson that we have from COVID in many countries, including, for example, the UK, the US, South Africa, the pandemic really pushed the childcare sector over the edge. Yeah, a childcare sector that was mainly based on very inadequate public funding and a disproportionate reliance on parental fees. So as soon as these services closed down, they didn't have parental fees anymore. They couldn't sustain themselves. And many facilities had to close down for good, which then meant once the economy reopened, right? Parents had to return to work. They were left without childcare um, because those facilities had had to go out of business. And this was less than a, a problem, obviously, in countries with solid publicly funded systems. It's probably fair to say that so far, It's really northern countries that have really had to think about this sort of more collective form of care. It is interesting to start seeing studies on how this can play out in low and middle income contexts. And there was a study I wanted to mention, I think it came out this year from Uganda, which compared cash transfers and childcare vouchers of equivalent value and looked at what the effects of that were on women and on children. And it was interesting because both led to women earning more, which is positive, of course. But interestingly, the childcare voucher seemed to mean that women entrepreneurs earned more without having to put in more hours because they did not have their children there. And to your point about multitasking being the sort of the very definition of care work, right? No, I agree. And I think it raises a broader, really important point. I think what we've been arguing for decades as well as feminists is Yes, you know, obviously we want women to have equal opportunities in the labor market and get access to paid jobs, et cetera, but not at the cost of a double and triple burden, right? And I think a lot of the studies that come out of, you know, looking at very poorly paid, precarious, informal work show 
not only that childcare responsibilities may hold women back from earning more, from being more productive, from getting better jobs, but also that very poorly backbreaking informal work compromises care, right? And so again, I think it goes back to a little bit what we discussed at the beginning. Sometimes it's good to just turn things around as well and ask, you know, what about we prioritize care for once and not economic productivity? Adriana, what do you think needs to be done or, or what could be done to promote better quality and more accessible care services in Latin America? So one of the care systems, the national care systems that I really like a lot is the example of Uruguay, where the basic understanding and framing of care is that we have to look at the rights and needs of care, needs of the people that provide cares. So how we make sure that their paid and unpaid care work, it's addressed. So making sure that public policy addresses things like social protection, and other kinds of social security for them, and um, to make sure that the women that are going to take care of the kids of other people also have their childcare needs met. One of these examples is um, the domestic workers in the Northwest of Brazil. They are advocating right now to improve and to expand the municipality childcare facilities so they can bring their kids to the childcare and they can go from the favela to the neighborhoods of the richer people to take care of their kids. We have to look at public policy as well. And uh, one thing that I love about domestic workers unions is that they not only look about improving their working conditions, their rights, but they also have to look at all the other social policies. And they challenge these family-oriented conservative policies that the state has been doing and continues doing that. So they are democratizing these services. One last thing, I think it's to always look for pathways that provide a trajectory for professionalization and formalization of the domestic workers and caregivers. In this sense, the state is taking part of the responsibility to ensure that the people that is doing this, care workers, domestic workers, are doing this work under conditions of formality, and it's providing a pathway of professionalization and certification. Because the people that need cares, they really need affordable quality. But this needs to be recognized and this needs to be elevated to the level of a profession. Adriana and Silke, thank you so much for this fantastic discussion and for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you. I think it was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for, for having me as well. I really enjoyed it. And I'd be really interested to hear what domestic worker organizations have to say about universal basic income. Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask a guest to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Today we have Ralph Rademacher joining us for Quick Wins. 
Ralph is the head of the Social Protection Program at GIZ. Welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. Hey, Jill. Thank you for having me. As we speak, you've just wrapped up in the last week the Global Forum on Adaptive Social Protection, which was held in Berlin in person with some sessions also shared online. Some of the key themes from the forum included the increased demand for social protection in the face of multiple simultaneous crises, the need for greater financing, and the critical role, of course, of cooperation in responding to these crises. So over to you. What were some of the key takeaways from the forum for you? Well, it was really exciting three days. We had excellent speakers, a lot of discussions between government, the representative of the international agencies, academics. And I would say it came away with you know two key hypotheses, which I would like to share today. So the first one is social protection is not a silver bullet. What I'd like to add to that is we have not exploited its full potential yet. So we have ample of evidence that social protection works. It reduces poverty, increases productive investments, it builds household resilience to shocks, can improve health status in households and keep children in school for longer. Social protection has positive effects on the local economy and so on and so forth. So you know them all. So positive effects are numerous. But Stefan is, of course, right to remind us that it's not a silver bullet for each and every problem, that we need investments in health, education, that economic growth is central for bringing wealth to people. And I might add that this that we better ensure that this growth is climate conscious. But before we draft ourselves as a sector, it's crucial to add that we have not exploited the full potential yet. We have seen great innovation in the use of digital technology in recent years, but we really only start using the current potential of digital technology and it's not widespread and systematic. Stefan compared it um, to a Swiss cheese that the system still has many holes and is not well interconnected. So if we are able to establish interoperable systems, of course, mindful of data protection considerations, we can layer social protection interventions more purposively. So when we are able to establish interoperable systems, there will be much more dynamic interactions between households and social protection systems possible. So one key building block of such a better digital backbone is certainly the payment system. It is not only crucial to help social protection programs reach the beneficiaries, but we may not forget what social protection can also do for the enhancement of financial inclusion in countries. A government-to-people payment interface is often operated by financial service providers in a country, and the financial stream flowing within the social protection system is in many countries a sort of, you know, the required base business volume for which can make it worthwhile for these financial service providers to also cater to more remote regions. And with that, social protection helps to enhance also financial inclusion. We also have not exploited the gender transformative aspects of social protection fully. There are some considerations in the design of social protection which can at least have some positive gender transformative effects. And one more aspect I wish to add is the potential use of social protection in the discussion on loss and damage in the climate context. This will add the aspects of slow onset events to the quick onset events, which we have been discussing, for instance, in the context of the global shield against climate risks already. I believe that social protection 
has an important role to play as a delivery mechanism of the loss and damage fund, but also to mitigate some of the effects of climate change, um, for instance, by using green public works. So all in all, social protection might not be the solution to every problem, of course, or the silver bullet, but we have not exploited its potential yet, nor have we brought it to everyone. Every second person on the globe is still missing, and there is still a long way to go. Thank you. And we'll put a link to that framing presentation in the show notes that's available online. You talked a lot about the potential for social protection to address a whole range of challenges, including the climate crisis. That's something, of course, we've also explored on this podcast. But of course, there are enormous challenges in ensuring that the resources are available and the right people are engaged in order to ensure that social protection can or will live up to its potential and address these major challenges. And you mentioned a second hypothesis coming out of the conference. So can you tell us what else was on your mind in that vein? My second point is that um, bringing adaptive social protection to more people requires close cooperation. And maybe even more than cooperation, really closer co-production. So I mentioned before, the task is still huge, resources are limited, and we therefore need to find the most efficient ways of cooperating or co-creating. And that refers on the one hand to cooperation between different government ministries and efficient coordination mechanisms there. But it's not only about efficient coordination, cooperation at national level, but also vertical, so the national and local level. And also, and particularly maybe, among development partners. We need to learn how to combine our respective strengths even better. You know, we have heard at the Global Forum how the IMF is a crucial partner to the social protection sector and helps in a dialogue with ministries of finance. They have a special inroad, they talk the same language. But we also heard that we need to combine the strengths of development banks and technical assistance better. So our minister, Svenja Schulze, for instance, underlined her desire to see the global accelerator for jobs and social protection for just transitions help in achieving that. So the German government will provide some seed funding to pilot more joint approaches under the umbrella of that global accelerator. For the ambitious goals ahead of us, massively expanding social protection coverage and enhancing system efficiency, we need to think in alliances and partnership. We need to understand the comparative strengths, but also our own limitations and how we combine our comparative strengths to overcome possible limitations and jointly become stronger than each of us could be alone. I think that's really the way which we need to explore better in future to make the most out of the resources available and really bring more social protection coverage and bring better social protection systems to each and every one. Thank you. So as you're talking about partnership, there is also a discussion that is ongoing about the partnerships that need to form between climate-affected countries and the global north and the wealthiest states that have developed um, using carbon-intensive methods and that challenge of kind of equaling the playing field for the rest of the world. Was that something that came up much in the context of social protection in this case, as a lot of these countries are facing these increased vulnerabilities to climate shocks, as well as, you know, all of the other shocks that we've been talking about, inflation crisis, COVID, still not such a distant memory. The aspect of climate justice was, for instance, very much underlined by Shazia Mari, the minister from Pakistan, also from her own personal experience of essentially 
originating from a province which has been frequently hit by floods in the recent years. So it's a very, it's a very tangible issue for her as well. I think here the discussion around the loss and damage fund is really something which is that vehicle for answering to some of the question. The global shield against climate risks is yet another one. The discussion to, to some degree converge and come together, I think. Uh, and obviously there is overall more room for thinking about social protection systems really catering to these covariate shocks. I mean, that's also why the overarching theme of the conference was on adaptive social protection, acknowledging that this is more than norm now. We really need to make systems fit for. Thank you. That's great. Yes, as you say, really important and a timely conversation. And I think we are all struck and living in this reality where the shocks are coming thick and fast and it is the new normal and more than ever the need to adapt and be adaptive and preemptive and some of these things is going to I think define a lot of shifts in the sector going forward or at least we hope so. I will just mention that the Global Forum was organised by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, that's BMZ, and the World Bank Group implemented by GIZ and yourself, Ralph, and supported by UNDP and, of course, socialprotection.org. I also mentioned that the last episode of this podcast also looked at adaptive social protection in practice in the Philippines and in Caribbean countries. So if you are interested in this topic, do check that one out. Ralph Radamaka, thank you so much for your time on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you very much. And thank you again for listening to the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at sp underscore gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Go on, leave a review. Back next month. See you then.